This evening, God's word for us comes, I believe, from the letter of James. As you know, this is one of those one-off sermons that sort of awkwardly falls in the middle of a series since Chris had this week off. And in recent weeks, we've been looking at how God took a ragtag band of Israelites, ex-slaves out of Egypt, and formed them into a people for himself through this gift we call worship. We've been seeing how songs and prayers and stories and all kinds of artistic pursuits don't just like express our heart to God, right? They actually shape us. Participating in worship forms our desires until we want what God wants. We've been there and we've been marinating in that for a while. So why James, right? That may seem like a really far cry from Exodus. It's Uh, almost as obscure to many people as the story of Moses is well known to every Sunday school child. It's one of those short letters at the back of the book and as much as Exodus is towards the front. It's more proverbial wisdom and even kind of fiery preaching than a Bible story. But I think the message is much the same. We become like what we worship. What we glorify reveals and in turn shapes our longings, such that we cannot fix our attention on Jesus without at least beginning to want what he wants. So, what I'm about to do is read you a sermon. Yeah, I know you thought I was going to preach you a sermon. I mean, hopefully I'll do that too. But um, we're going to sort of step back in time and hear what you might have heard if you were in one of the very first churches, the one in Jerusalem, where James... Not the Apostle James, but James, the brother of Jesus, was one of the leaders there. Uh, Will you stand with me? And if you want your pew Bible, you can turn to James chapter 2. It's on page 1,217. We're going to read the first half, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord, glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or mm, sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves to become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. 
mercy triumphs over judgment. You can be seated. Lord Jesus Christ, open our hearts tonight to receive the word that it may be implanted deep in our souls. May it grow there and bring the fruit forth that leads to our salvation. Amen. One of James' special concerns, a theme throughout his whole collection of teachings, is our actions reveal our true heart condition. And more, maybe more than any other New Testament author, I think James wants to remind us, maybe warn us forcefully, that our hearts can be very divided among themselves and extremely prone to deceive us. So James' caution is always to let our insides and our outsides match. So I feel completely inadequate to preach this, right? I am hearing this word as much as you guys because I do not think I have it all down yet. This opening line, I think you could call it James' thesis statement, can also be translated as a sort of question, a calling attention to what he sees as this critical mismatch between their behavior and then the church's confession of faith. Um, some translations try to capture this. For instance, my brothers and sisters, do you with your habitual acts of favoritism really believe in our Lord Jesus Christ? The favoritism or partiality these are kind of those multi-syllable words that go eh, right over your head, right? Literally, it's a very interesting word, like a Greek translation of probably a Hebrew expression, which we would expect from James. This is a very Jewish church, this early Christian church. And it translates something literally like receive according to the face, right? to accept someone according to what you see externally in them. So it could be indicators of wealth, and let's be honest, clothes still mean status and wealth, right? But it could be absolutely any of those external indicators of belonging that we show some preference for. I'm sure if you think for a second, you can think of more than a few. Scientists of human behavior, I understand, tell us that to discriminate among people this way, like a, have a preference for your own tribe, is so natural, it's almost hardwired into us. So we are divided, right? We read fairy tales to our children, like, like Beauty and the Beast. It says, you know, don't judge by appearances, kids. That's one of those all you need to know you learned in kindergarten things. But we all turn around and we live out in front of them a rather different story so that they keep inheriting the same prejudices and the same discriminations that we have. And here we have James telling us that this way of receiving people according to these externals isn't just a foible. And it's not an unavoidable reality either. It's actually fundamentally incompatible with Christian faith. Whew. Okay, we have a problem already. Now, James is a really good preacher, so first thing he does is give a vivid sermon illustration. We've got some Christians gathered together, and he actually uses the word synagogue, which is actually kind of a strange word for Christian worship, so we're not exactly sure if this is their worship gathering, or could it be a sort of um, gathering for judicial purposes? Like, we're not supposed to, we know we're not supposed to submit our disagreements to the secular courts, Jesus told us not to, our teachers are all saying not to do that, so we have kind of an in-house time for sitting down and figuring it out. It could really be either of those. 
But in either case, James imagines these two visitors, and he makes just an extreme contrast between them. One, he says, is literally like gold-fingered, like made up a word for it, gold-fingered, and in shining clothes. And the one other one comes in these disgustingly filthy rags. So one has the bling, and the other you know hasn't taken a bath. Is James saying that this scenario actually happened? Is this like a letter of Paul where he's addressing like a really specific thing that happened in the church? Well, maybe. Grammatically, it's more of a hypothetical situation. But I think we should assume the essential plausibility of the scenario. Like, from our perspective here and now, we have a little bit of cultural difference with James' community. And I think this is the main way that we do. We look at that scenario, and it's kind of easier for it to roll off our back as we're almost like, wait, is this like a test? This is like a test of my egalitarian principles, right? Yes, I pass. I know what I would do. I treat everybody the same because that's like dogma for us. For James' audience, consider that the social order underlying this anecdote up to this point would actually make perfect sense. Like, of course you value people according to their worth. In fact, not only was that true in the ancient Roman Empire, I think it's still true in a lot of cultures. I, I really enjoyed reading the latest World Vision magazine for winter. Anybody get that? World, World Vision people here? They had this story that was so poignant. The family of this little girl, Sonali, in Bangladesh. And they had been in just the most abject poverty. And the really holistic interventions that World Vision brought to their community had benefited this family tremendously. They received animals, not just animals, but like help knowing how to care for the animals so they didn't die. And the children got health interventions and the mom got nutrition interventions. And between all of those things, the security and status of this family just rose dramatically to where they were kind of like middle of the road for their community. And of course they were incredibly grateful for this and, and happy. They were glad for their children's health and they were glad for improved prospects for their education. But this is what got me. The father said, <clears throat> now I have a good life and the community people honor me. And they try to talk to me before I felt isolated, but now I feel I am included in the society. Because in Bangladesh or in Rome or really even today, to be poor is to be insignificant to be the people nobody sees or wants to talk to. Now, if my projection guy could have given a little more notice, but I have a picture for you to bring things a little closer to home, maybe. We'll just jump uh, 1,800 years or so. This is a picture of a church building. This is the Rockingham Meeting House in southern Vermont that was built right in the early years of our nation, so about 1780s and 90s. And right now, you see the upstairs of this building, and you see some, you know, kind of basic church pews like what you're sitting in right now. Um, and you know, the kids want to sit up there and throw spitballs, that's the proverbial wisdom, right? Okay, let's see the main floor of this church. This is the main floor. If you haven't seen this before, your jaw might be as far down as mine was. These are called box pews, and they were common in meeting houses in the American colonies, and they were a tradition brought over from England. And each of these has a wall around it, literally, about shoulder height and its own door, and then benches. Apparently, you don't need to see the preacher to hear him. Kind of had an idea there. Um, 
And this is kind of how pews came into being. Now, each pew belonged to a particular family. If you look up the Old North Church in Boston, you can look up every individual and which pew number they sat in. The, the historians have it all right there. And each pew was hereditary, had a title, it could be handed down to your kids, and they were bought and paid for. So I looked at a pew, uh, uh, heard of one pew roster from the early 1800s, where those first seats you saw, like up in the balcony, or the maybe even pews in the balcony, went for $12. Of course, that was a lot more than for us, but still $12. Anyone want to guess what the pews on the middle aisle were worth? What do you think, David? No, you heard me already. Anybody? Hundreds? What do you guess? How much? 75. Kids, you got to guess? Anybody? What do you think, Emma? 50? Okay. The center aisle pews were $1,000. And you can guess who sat front and center and who sat in the back in the places that were hottest in the winter, or hottest in the summer, coldest in the winter. Now, now you know, it was a practical thing because these houses weren't, these meeting houses weren't heated at all. So what you could actually do, this is kind of fun, you could bring your pot of coals to church, put it in the middle of that little box pew, and kind of huddle around. So there was a, there was a practical reason for it, right? But yet, to us, we, we sit here and we wonder, how can any body of believers who read that text we just read think this is normative? Like, what kind of theological gyrations do you have to go through to make that seem acceptable? And yet, I want to show you this, not to condemn 18th and 19th century Americans, just to demonstrate that the human capacity for cognitive dissonance is tremendous just like James wants us. So perhaps instead of patting ourselves on the back for our enlightened attitudes, we should stop and ask ourselves, what practices are we participating in that we might not even have questioned? Because it's like, it's just how things are. It's the only practical way. And someday we may stand before Christ and we'll say, well, it seemed quite justifiable at the time. To the colonials, the box pews were just an obvious way to pay for the construction and maintenance of church buildings, not to mention keeping warm. To the culture of the ancient Roman world, wealth and status obviously deserved deference and honor. So the next thing James has to do is give his hearers two reasons why an assembly of Christians should look different from the culture from which they're gathered. And I think we might need to hear them as much as they did. Two reasons. First, the biblical reason. He calls them to remember their biblical tradition of justice. Because from the top to the bottom of Scripture, God is the God of justice, who deals fairly. And not only that, hears and is an advocate for the poor. So Leviticus says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And I've found that um, a classic image the rabbis would use when they taught that text was that when you're two people you're judging between, you don't let the rich man sit and the poor man stand. So even if it seems a little far-fetched to us, for James, he's drawing on a tradition here. This is what it means to do justice. And then if there's going to be any bias at all, God actually takes the side of the poor. He says in Psalms, he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. Or he pled the cause of the afflicted and needy 
Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Jeremiah says the Messiah will judge the poor with righteousness. So Jesus stands up in his first sermon and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Okay, sorry if I'm being redundant. I could actually, like, fill <laughs> much longer time with those because it's the heartbeat of the scriptures. And finally, looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Which, of course, is the text that James is drawing on right here. Didn't God choose the poor to inherit his kingdom? We want to be a little bit careful with that. Does this mean that being poor is like an automatic ticket to salvation or heaven or something? Don't take it to that extreme because, of course, if that was the case, the Bible would never tell us to help the poor, which it amply does, right? If poor is like, like get out of here free, couldn't, wouldn't we all just go be poor right now? But the Bible recognizes the misery and insignificance involved in poverty, so that's not what James is saying here. However, I do think he's saying that the poor have an advantage over those of us who are comfortable and who kind of think we have the good life. The poor know they are dependent on God, and in that sense, they have a leg up. Now, for a second reason why this situation just should not be, James points out that the congregation's reflexive deference to the rich is not even in their own self-interest. Apparently, in this community, the rich are taking some of the poor people to court, maybe to get more land, in some way prosecuting them or exploiting them. Uh, but this is nothing new, right? Do the powerful and wealthy and famous elements of our society usually work for the common good? Or do they usually tend to consolidate their own power and self-interest? So what is it with us? Why do we show so much attention, so much regard, so much deference to those who actually exploit us for the most part? That's the question. James says the problem is at the level of our thoughts, and that it's our thoughts that shape these behaviors. The language James shows says, you've become judges with evil thoughts, so we know we need to take him seriously on this. And he uses a rhetorical question to force that conclusion. Have you not become, oh, yes, we have. I think we, too, have to answer James' question with a yes. This is my take on the situation. See if this resonates with you. I think that what we honor reveals what we long for. Like where we ascribe glory and fame and celebrity shows what we think is important and what we wish for ourselves. So we honor the rich wishing for material security. Right? We glorify the famous because we long for significance. We wish someone would know and affirm us. We honor the powerful because we wish we had some control in life, some kind of influence, some agency. See, the focus of our attention reveals our yearning, and then in a sort of circle, the practice of giving that attention further shapes our longings. In fact, there's even an entire industry devoted to convincing us that this vision of human flourishing is not only right, but that all those things we want are actually available to us if you just buy the right product. It's a wonderful world of advertising. So we might ask, using James' clue, to whom do we pay special attention 
like for us, who gets heard? Who gets seen? I'm so glad, actually, that these questions are getting a lot of currency in our culture right now. Who's noticed? Who gets called on? Who's significant? Who gets a free pass to act in ways that are unacceptable? Right now, we're all abuzz on learning of the habitual predations of rich and powerful men, but should we be surprised? Like, did we expect some vague notion of decency to unseat their deeply entrenched belief that, hey, success in the eyes of the world means I can do whatever I want? Some of these people helped to create the story we tell in our culture about freedom, and that's a story that celebrates freedom as removing every possible restraint that could hold us back from fulfilling our desires. Okay. You're the winners in that culture, so you act out your vision of freedom. Are we really that shocked when we read that people who up to this point in our society have enjoyed a privilege based on their race or their ethnic heritage are not exactly prepared to just hand that over without putting up a fight? Because they've told us very explicitly that their vision of the world is one where everybody who matters looks like them. And I imagine that's only because that way can they convince themselves that they matter. And are we confused when we have neighbors so quick to holler, not in my backyard, when any site that would provide services to the poor is proposed? Because that particular vision of the good life that consists in, as Francis Schaeffer so pithily said, personal peace and affluence, that's always required the privilege to screen from their vision any images of human misery that might kind of unsettle their illusion of comfort. See, in all of these things, Favoritism shows a root cause, which is the heart that is turned in on itself, on what we need. And that's why it's both such a prevalent human practice and so incompatible with Jesus' gospel. I think the mistake we make in our society is we think that equality is just obvious or normal or natural, and it isn't, right? The normal and natural human response is just, you know, Loyalty to those who are near you, who are like you, and who can love you in return. It's honor to those who deserve honor. Stick with your friends and family. Take care of your own peeps. The gospel challenges us at just that very point, because Jesus' kingdom takes all those structures and basically turns them completely upside down. The poor are rich. Your enemy is a neighbor. The undeserving come to the table. The problem is just that, hey, we're deeply committed to this vision of the good life as that in which self is the most comfortably enthroned, right? And the depth of our commitment to that vision can be measured by how quick we are to justify ourselves when we're confronted with anything that suggests otherwise. You know, we're pretty sure we've done well enough by those who deserved something from us. In other words, we aren't all that different from the lawyer who once approached Jesus. Now, I picked this passage in Luke because I think that if James is a sermon, then the Good Samaritan is his gospel text. The lawyer wants to know, how shall I inherit eternal life, the kingdom? How do I get in on this? Jesus says, what do you find written in the law? I think the lawyer is actually pretty perceptive because he bypasses the obvious commandments, just listing things off, and he goes right to the heart of the matter. You know, I realize I need to love God and love my neighbor as myself. And so Jesus says, right, do this and live. Or as James says, 
you really fulfill that royal law, you are doing well. Jim's view of the law is interesting. He's really clear that we don't get to just kind of count up the commandments on the list that we've kept and then hope that if there's enough in this column, it's going to cancel out those few pesky places in this column where we didn't do so well. The Torah, law, is not really just a list of rules. The idea is that it's this all-encompassing teaching, God putting out his standard of justice by which he wants us to live. I know James, if you've studied some James, he sometimes gets a bad rap, right, as the pro-law guy, and then like, oh, but Paul is all about grace and freedom from the law, and like, what's going on here? But I would say that James and Paul and Jesus, and even for that matter, the lawyer, are really all in agreement that the essence of Torah is love. Paul says it this way, writing to the Romans, Owe nothing to anyone except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And the commandments, and he lists several, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So if the law is God's instruction and intention that we should live and love and do no harm, really if you offend against that love in one point, you have missed the mark. You haven't committed adultery. Good for you, right? You picked some pretty obvious, like low-hanging fruit, right? You haven't murdered anyone. Yay! <laughs> but have you discriminated against persons created in God's image? You failed to relieve the distress of the needy? then just as surely we are breakers of the law. So wait a minute, just one little mistake? Like I could live completely holy life with just one little mistake and I'd still be like judged guilty? Isn't that terribly unfair? I'm gonna say no because James is such a realist. If you look in chapter three, he reminds us, we all stumble in many ways. All right, so James is basically saying, okay, you want to be judged by the Mosaic law? <clears throat> Good luck with that. What's our alternative then? It gets a little bit confusing because James uses law again, but in a fuller sense. He starts to talk about something he calls the law of liberty or the royal law. Literally, that would be like the kingdom law, if you're starting to make that connection. And that's the law under which we'll be judged. What does this mean? What could this, this other law be? Um, Blomberg and Kummel, I think, sum up the, like, the pretty much four possibilities. Is it the Torah as a whole? One. Is it the Torah fulfilled and expanded by Christ? Is it a new law that Christ gives? Or is it maybe even just the specific love commandment that we're talking about in this verse? The adjectives when James says law of liberty and royal law suggests that he's trying to say something different from just Torah. So maybe not option one. It looks like the kingdom law has to have something to do with the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom. And at the same time, he is an early Jewish writer. And so I don't think James was uh, likely to feel that Jesus had just tossed out Torah and put an entirely new thing in its place. In fact, Jesus didn't claim to do that. He said, I came to fulfill the law. So not option three. 
Number four seems kind of possible since we're talking about the love commandment here. And Jesus says it's the most important commandment, but royal doesn't exactly mean most important. So it seems likely that the second option is the best. When James says the law that brings freedom, he's thinking of the covenant as expanded and most importantly, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus' person. See, the Torah standing alone just exposes our failure to love, our terminal case of selfishness. And Jesus could live truly according to God's heart. Like, if you can even imagine loving without self-interest. Always returning the glory to the Father. And in this way that instead of turned in on himself, was completely open to that encounter with the other. Now in Jesus' story, the lawyer presses on, wishing to justify himself. See, he's still hoping that his limited application of the commandment will do the trick. So in response, Jesus tells a story. He always tells a story. And the story is about a man who's not even introduced to us as a Jew. His only qualification or descriptor is a desperate state of need. He's been beaten up and left for dead. The religious leaders don't see his need as having any claim on them. I mean, they don't actively harm him, right? They don't walk by and give him another kick. They just are disinterested. But it's the foreigner, the fairly hated foreigner, and someone Jesus' audience would consider like completely beyond their circle of obligation that becomes this example of human concern. And the quality Jesus praises in the Samaritan is... Mercy. Mercy is an inclination to kindness and compassion without regard for the worth of the object, the worthiness of the object. See, mercy gets the last word in James because mercy is the fundamental principle of the kingdom of God. We are called to this mercy with no respect to persons because that's the characteristic of our God. Like in Hebrew scripture, God's chesed, his kindness, his covenant faithfulness is one of his defining attributes. Like, like this, let all the people of Israel say, his chesed endures forever, right? His, his kindness towards us. It's not something new that came about with Jesus, right? And we know that's how it's translated because when you get a quotation from the Old Testament in the New, like, I desire Chesed and not sacrifice, the New Testament writers say, mercy. Mercy is what God wants, and it's what God gives us. Because it's the beautiful truth that you and I are not accepted because we are significant. And we weren't accepted by God because we excelled in wealth or status. It's not our desirability or even our good behavior. We were all the wrong people. We were the lawbreakers, the arrogant. Pretty safe to say most of us were the Gentiles, the people who did not know God. And in purely undeserved mercy, don't ask me how this works, because it's a mystery. But when we turn to God in that faith, Jesus fulfills the law for us. It's his total obedience to the Father. It's his taking the place of the lawbreaker and going outside the community 
taking on that suffering that he did not deserve. So the law that brings liberty is the good news that Jesus fulfilled every covenant promise and invited us to share the reward. First Peter says this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, there's the kingdom, through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Through God's mercy, we not only inherit the kingdom, we are formed as the people of God. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, coming back around, it is for this reason I think that James is so insistent that every division among us in the body of Christ, especially those between the ones the world calls rich and poor, but also every kind of receiving according to face, is evil. See, it undoes the essence of what it means for us to be the church. In the end, I can't do much better than to say with James, Remember who you are. We are God's called out ones. Like, the church should be this picture of the humanity that's redeemed and reconciled to God and to one another so that we are like a sign of God's love for everybody else, for the whole world. That's why our visible unity across every kind of social barrier brings glory to God. But when we set up divisions among ourselves, Seeing with the world's eyes, that is sin. So in closing, I want to take us for a minute right back to the beginning. Because that's where we'll find the glory. Brothers and sisters, when you receive the other according to face, do you really hold the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Now, tell me the truth. When you hear like a long list of attributes or names for Jesus, you just kind of skim over it, right? Like Christ is like his last name, right? No? We can't do that here because if we do, it may leave us with kind of an empty sense that, oh, James is just giving us some more like no better, do better, just a list of moral things instead of gospel. Hang in with me for one more bit of language work because the Greek here does something really odd. Like literally it says, hold the faith of, and then four things, all kind of the same grammatically, of our Lord, of Jesus, of Christ, of the glory. It's kind of strange phrasing. And so most translators settle for our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, because that's kind of what you would do in English. And some try to capture the fact that there's something funny going on here by saying like, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Because, like, we really need a noun in there somewhere. But some are bolder, suggesting that it's Jesus who is the glory. Like, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. In the past, the glory of God settled temporarily on the tabernacle and then the temple so that Moses' face shone when he had been with God, or the priests like fell to the ground in worship. But in the fullness of time, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As we approach even, I know, Christmas? No, it can't be that soon, right? We often say Jesus came to die on the cross, but the incarnation itself, like the eternal word existing with the Father before all time, comes to dwell with us and accept all those limitations of human life. That means accepting death right from the get-go, right? That itself is a profound act of his covenant faithfulness, his kindness, his love. It's Jesus who shows us God's glory. So we've come back to worship. Because we found that worship isn't just this thing we kind of do once a week. It's at the heart of our ethics. Because lives that are transformed by coming under God's mercy and by this habit of ascribing glory to God and embracing Jesus' vision of the kingdom are going to play out differently in those day-to-day decisions from those that are driven by the world's view of glory. If Jesus is the Lord, or the one we call master, the only lawgiver and judge, a rule we don't get to usurp, the soon-coming king, as we remember, you can't submit to that Jesus and still glorify a vision of like self-rule and autonomy as the ultimate in human flourishing, can you? Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, anointed one, filled with the Spirit to proclaim the good news, suffering for us, vindicated by resurrection from the dead. You can't trust for your salvation in that Messiah who humbled himself to the point of death and still honor rank and status. We cannot worship Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the glory of the Father revealed, and simultaneously worship any of the things that the world regards. Lord Jesus, we confess that we find within ourselves deep yearnings for a vision of goodness that could be realized here and now. That we have often been turned in ourselves, in ourselves and we have often done harm to neighbor, wittingly or unwittingly. Please give us the vision of your kingdom and help us to live it out. And as we come to this table where we receive your mercy and we pledge you our allegiance, please make of us truly your body and a sign of your love to the world. Amen.